Welcome to the Proteomics in Proximity podcast, where your co-hosts Dale Yuzuki, Cindy Lawley and Sarantis Klamidis from Olink Proteomics talk about the intersection of proteomics with genomics for drug target discovery, the application of proteomics to reveal disease biomarkers and current trends in using proteomics to unlock biological mechanisms. Here we have your hosts, Dale, Cindy and Sarantis. Welcome to the Proteomics and Proximity podcast, and today we're going to be talking about HATTR and amyloidosis. What is that, Cindy? So we're specifically we we've you know narrowed down this really fant- I think a fantastic paper from uh, Samina Takao and uh, and Paul Noy, uh, who looked at. Uh, neuro, it looked at essentially a broad proteomic profiling of samples that they just had sitting in their freezers. And so, you know, Evan um, uh, Mills on our team uh, has often said that <clears throat> these samples that have completed clinical trials and are sitting in the freezer might have uh, some some nuggets that uh, that we might be able to mine by doing a broad scale approach in proteomics, and that's exactly what this team did. And, and they came out of it with a, a biomarker that shows potential for not, not only uh, diagnosing a hard-to-diagnose genetic disease, uh, it's, it shows promise as um, monitoring disease progression as well as response to the therapy that was part of that clinical trial. So yeah, this is an exciting paper. So I to think. back up a little bit, what is HATTR? This is a rare disease, I understand. Yep, that's right. It's a hereditary transthyridin amyloidosis. So the TTR is transthyridin gene, hmm. which is a, a protein. So there's a mutation in the in the protein for TTR, and it resor- results in some um, some amyloid. We we know amyloid from from our discussions around uh, around plaques in particularly in Alzheimer's, Alzheimer's. disease. Correct. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. so here you have these aggregations of proteins that, uh, that result in some challenging polyneuropathy that is, uh, progressive and fatal. So you can imagine being someone who's been tested for this and they find out they have it and they're just got a ticking bomb. They just got to wait and test and wait to see if it shows up, if it ever ever evolves. It does. It sounds awful. Because this is a progressive debilitating disease because it affects your nervous system, but it also affects other organs. Is that correct? It it affects the, the, as I understand it, it affects the the ability of the, the Schwann cells, I think, to to uh, give their signals, I think it's a, it's interfering with the signals in the musculature. It sort if of I remember a- my high school physiology. Let's see, Schwann cells is one of the types of nerve cells. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. In sending signals. Yeah, I remember reading something about the proposed mechanism of the disease, uh, and and of course, as most disease. Uh, there's heterogeneity, which makes it challenging also to stratify and, and get through a, pos- a, a successful clinical trial. I see. And thus, thus the need for this kind of study. Can you describe what they did? Yeah, sure. So they did a, uh, they did a cross-sectional arm as well as a longitudinal arm. So essentially they, they, are, they essentially looked at uh, their cases where they're giving the therapy over at baseline at nine months and 18 months. And they looked at their um, placebo and it was randomized, double blind, I believe, 
and that was the component that was longitudinal. So again, three time points over, over the course of treatment. And then they had uh, a cross-sectional aspect of just healthy controls that they monitored over that same period of time. So, so this is a clinical trial that they were conducting, like phase two or phase three? Yeah, I presume it was phase three. Mm-hmm. Um, phase three, yes. It's phase yeah, three. Yeah, yeah, it looked like a phase three trial. I don't remember them stating that in the paper, but they probably did. It's, it's called the Apollo trial. It's a pretty well-known trial because it's an RNAi therapeutic. So uh, it's an interfering uh, with RNA. So RNAi and, therapeutics, yeah. uh, help me with this. Yeah. Is that like gene therapy? Is this like a vaccine you know, we've talked about mRNA vaccines. Is it like yeah. that? It's there very few. I, to my knowledge, there are very few drugs that are uh, FDA approved for WCNTRNA that target the silencing of the genes. At the end, what happens with this, uh, let's say, pathology is we have a mutated version of the TTR protein and also a war type uh, version of TTR, kind of a overexpression of the protein. And in that case, they try to target the expression uh, of the of the mRNA post-transcriptionally at the cytoplasm. They inject the uh, RNA, target the three prime untranslated region of the gene. This is the risk complex with the dicer argonaut that helps the targeting actually of the antisense trend so if I... on the complementary region of the gene, and then uh, degradation of the mRNA with argon too. That is the endonuclease of, so, of the system, actually. So That's I, pretty much the mechanism of action. Okay, so with Dicer and Argonaut, understood. Absolutely. Ba- backing Absolutely. up a little bit, right, these COVID vaccines, right, from Pfizer, BioNTech, and, and Moderna, I mean, these were mRNA vaccines that were used to yeah. actually produce spike protein. But here, yeah. what you're talking about RNAi is similarly, right? They're injecting RNA. They inject double strand RNA targeting the free prime untranslated region of the gene. Interesting. That's, that's pretty much what happened. And, yeah. and then yeah. it actually then turns down the expression, the expression of, the, of the gene. And they're tackling the mutant form, is that correct? The one that's messing they things up? They're tackling both because this, this actually, this region that they are targeting is for both the mutant and the wild type. You know, and they wow. target both. They don't regulate both. The, yeah. But the disease because, problem. As I said, mm. patients they have they have two 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 alleles, one the mutant and the other the wild type. Usually, most of the cases. And the whole problem is it's just overexpression. Kind of right mm. because you have the overexpression of the mutated version as well, right? You have the presence of you have the presence of the wild type and the presence of the a new protein that is misfolded and aggregated. Mm. I see. So then they develop this drug. What is this drug called? Uh, Patisseran. Okay. Patisseran. So, so Alnylam produces this drug, Patisseran, but this drug actually is RNA for RNA interference. Um, and we're, we're talking, Cindy, then also about the middle of this clinical trial, and they're using healthy versus uh, dis, uh, affected patients. Then what did they find? Yeah, so they, uh, in their uh, cross-sectional arm, they found that uh, an expected protein, and this is, sorry, the longitudinal arm, so in the, clinic, in the aspect without the healthy controls, so just looking at the placebo and the treated over baseline nine months and 18 months, so in that longitudinal arm, they looked at uh, the time progression of different proteins as patisseran was given, right? So they're looking for signals in various proteins 
that are popping up above um, significance for being differentially um, expressed. And they found two of note. They found, I think, 66 total that were um, providing significant you know, differences, but the two that really popped out, and especially in those in those um, volcano plots, are um, NT Pro BNP, which was an expected uh, an expected signal, and I, in fact, I think that was part of the clinical trial uh, using NT Pro BNP. But what was unexpected was NFL, and of course, that's part of the the title of the paper: Neural Filament Light Chain as a Biomarker of Hereditary Transthyroidin Mediated Amyloidosis. And so, so with NFL, they were finding that the placebo uh, group uh, progressively increased in in their NFL levels over the course of the the eighteen months, uh, and that they could compare. So once they you know got those signals in the longitudinal arm, now they could actually put in the NFL levels for the healthy controls and look at healthy controls relative to those placebo treated. Those are going to be the ones that aren't going to be getting any better. And they're going to be comparing the healthy controls to those that are treated with patisseran. And what they saw was that the placebo uh, uh, samples were increasing in neurofilament light over the course of the trial, whereas those treated with patisseran were coming or trending toward healthy controls over the course of the trial. Now, as far as then the results of the trial, the people that were on patisseran got better or didn't get worse. Is that correct? That's correct. And in fact, there's a um, there's a, a statement around the the current methods by which we monitor for progression of polyneuropathy in these patients, or in even initial diagnosis for these patients. And so there's a, um, a neuropathy impairment score that they used. And in fact, they used this to stratify and figure out who are the patients that are relevant for the clinical trial. Uh, you want ones that have you know, active disease, obviously. And, um, and they were able to mm-hmm. see that, uh, that the impairment score uh, improved as the neurofilament light levels uh, went toward healthy controls. So that's a nice um, suggestion that uh, that you might be able to use neurofilament light to actually identify uh, when that, that impairment is happening. The challenge with, I think, that impairment score is it, it was described as burdensome to administer. I'm guessing, you know, with some of these... Um, scores where they're doing a, a movement uh, requirement, they can be a bit objective, hard to, to really nail down across different doctor's offices. I'm just making that assumption that, well, yeah. that that's I mean, what they mean. You're talking about a subjective measurement of some ability to do something, right, in terms of exactly. nervous activity. And here, well, backing up, um, how did they discover neurofilament light? I mean, this is using Olink panels then, Yeah. Yeah, yeah, good point. So they, yeah, we, we should probably emphasize that a little bit. <laughs> they, um, they used our, our, our tool that was the broadest look at the proteomic, um, at the proteome that we had at the time. So they essentially used all of the, the unique proteins we had in our library across, I think it was 13 or 14 different panels. Uh, one, one of our 14 human panels is actually, um, redundant with, with, the others. So I think it's 14. Um, this is an Olink Target yeah, 96. 
Yeah, 13. Yeah, exactly. QPCR panels. And so each of those QPCR panels have 92 proteins uh, along with controls. So you can run uh, 96 samples against 96 proteins at a time. Uh, including those controls. So, so, yeah, they did a broad look, as broad as they could, with what was available at the time. I think it would be interesting to to see what they could do now with uh, just under 3,000 proteins, right? We've more than doubled the library since then, and, and on the NGS readout. Right. So, out of these, what, over 1,000 proteins, they were able to, you mentioned, find 66, and you mentioned the two of note. The NT-ProBNP sounds familiar. Isn't that a cardiac marker? I, I would ask the man who is the specialist on the I affairs think also, of the yeah, heart. I think also could, be, could be a cardiac marker as well. Could be cardiac as so, well, yeah. It's true. So why, why do they find, uh, you, uh, Cindy, you mentioned that it, the pro-BNP was expected. That, that, I guess that was already known with this uh, amyloidosis condition. Yeah. Yep. Any thoughts why you have a marker for heart health that crosses over to basically neurological disease? I, I think that happens a lot, right? Oh, I think really? that's where the excitement is, is where, you know, our bodies are incredibly good at repurposing uh, different things that, you know, well, we all thought that there would be this really simple smoking gun in the genetic world, right? Once we were able to look at genetics, we thought that we would have like one uh, mutation for each disease. And now we find that there's actually lots of different mutations that lead to, uh, you know, death by a thousand cuts for, for risk for, for various diseases like cardiac uh, disease and stuff like that. So, so I think the overlap of how these different diseases have the same pathways is going to tell us something about mechanism. Um, but I think the speculation, uh, I don't remember if they speculated in the paper, Dale, but I'm, I'm guessing you might have some ideas, but I would, I would push it over to our Sarantis affairs of the heart. <laughs> I'm taking the difficult part. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I have seen a little bit in the literature that this amyloid could be formed also with different tissues like cardiac and people, they have a combination of disease like neuropathy, cardiomyopathies, and usually these amyloids, they target cells that they are not mitotic active, like uh, cardiac cells, Interesting. like you know, polynucleate, and they are not uh, mitotic active. That usually they target this. And fascinating point. an explanation, but of course, they don't, they don't uh, give, a, they, they, they don't go through the details, and they don't try to give an explanation. Yeah, uh, I think they just stated as fact, right, that this was yeah, not a surprising yeah, yeah. finding. Um, yeah. The fact yeah. that they got not only these two markers, but another 64 of them, um, that seems to be quite a lot of markers, right? They're not going to chase after each of them. But what can you say about, well, naturally the title is around one marker. Is there value in looking at more than one? So I, yeah, I'll just jump in and say this, this group is part of the um, UK Biobank Pharma Proteomics Project now. So they, they joined in kind of a second wave of, of additions to that proteomics project. Initially, it was 10 partners. Now it's 13. And uh, Al Nylum was one of them. So, and, and probably this, these multi-analyte signatures are something that they, they may be certain, they may be pursuing internally but not, you know, publishing on. And, and in fact, I will say it's pretty rare that uh, uh, um, a team within a pharmaceutical company is able to, to publish on findings like this. I was very excited to see that they uh, took the time to, to put it out into the literature to help others understand this mechanism. 
Well, like we were talking about how difficult it is to assess the diagnosis, then one thought, right, is that the important findings is neurofilament light as a diagnostic marker. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. As a diagnostic marker and one that can, you know, monitor disease progression and uh, and response to yeah. therapy, right? Um, so what I'll do you also mean by, say that oh, go ahead. Paul Noe, who uh, who was the the principal investigator on this paper, the the final author, uh, has a, a long history with decode and Amgen. Very very strong uh, genetics uh, specialist. He's um, quite uh, accomplished as a scientist. And then Samina, Samina Takao is uh, a principal scientist, of course, at El Nylum. And as far as then you mentioned disease progression, what do you mean by that? So if I understood correctly, the people with disease with placebo, right, they had this rising level of NFL and people that were on the, the medication, right, stayed constant. Um, what will a biomarker do with regard to telling how far you are coming along with the disease? You mentioned disease progression. Actually, yeah. as far as I understand, it's mm. not like a constant. I think that they're also decreasing and reaching out to the levels of the healthy controls. And that is because they're running the healthy controls, right? And then you see that initially healthy controls with the disease, they are like four times lower, roughly. Mm-hmm. And by having the, the patisiron, right, they see that levels of the patients in the patient samples the levels of NFL goes like towards leans towards the healthy conditions right that was the, the, the case and for this it was responsive to the therapy at the end right that's I think that was a really nice thing with this protein I see yeah and I think I think if they, I understood correct this, uh, this topic actually yeah I, I agree I think that the levels uh, trended toward healthy samples in the patisserie treated and they reached um, a, a a level that they stayed at from nine months to eighteen months. At least that's what it looks like in the in the significance levels and the graphs. That essentially they're saying, I think, that they're able to um, have a quick response, and that those yeah. patients appear to stay steady at least over those eighteen months, right? But that long longer studies uh, are needed to really. Yeah nail down the value of that as a marker um, over that long yeah, period of time. Sure. Now, if I understand correctly, uh, Sarantis, you mentioned this patisserin drug is actually double-stranded RNA. It's silencing uh, these particular uh, transthyretin genes that are aberrantly mutated, what have you. Um, is it just one dose? Do they have to take multiple doses? This I don't know. It's and actually, an maybe I think it's one dose. They are injectable, and it's it happens to the liver, targeted to the liver. But uh, mm-hmm. I, I don't know if there's a second dose or third dose on this. But uh, yeah, yeah, Intra, it, I, I think it's intravenous and uh, targets liver. Yeah, liver I see. Tissue. Thinking about it, it probably does make sense that there are regular dosage. I, I was thinking about sort of after the trial was over, right? They used the broadest panel that they could with the Olink Target 96, the 13 mm-hmm. or 14 of them. But that was for yeah. discovering more, right? Wasn't the goal of that just to look at mechanism of action in terms of how patisserin was working? I think it's not like how patisserin is working. Mm. It's like how the silencing of the gene affects other proteins that they could be potential biomarkers. I see. Because at the end, patisserin mm-hmm. targets the, the gene TTRG. 
doesn't target any other gene, you know, targets yep. the gene. Then what we are screening, what they're actually they are screening, is the effect on other proteins that they are made connected yeah. upon, uh, you know, this amyloidosis. Got it. Well, the system's biology of it gets pretty complicated because you're just talking yeah. about reducing the expression of one gene, but we're a system. Yeah. So, yeah. But we yeah. can speculate yeah. what they're doing internally, but we're not going to know if they're not publishing on it, right? Yeah. 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 Absolutely. Sure. Absolutely. Well, Cindy, you mentioned some interesting things related to multiple sclerosis and. You know, with neurological disorders, I mean, coming from the genomics perspective, I myself know very little about neurological disease like multiple sclerosis. But you, you mentioned a conversation about Epstein-Barr virus and multiple sclerosis. Do you mind sharing yeah. that? Yeah, sure. So uh, uh, I, I think it's quite the buzz in the Twitterverse. And uh, several people I, I trust have um, been really impressed with this paper, and we can put it in the show notes, around really assigning causality to a subset of MS patients. And MS is, of course, very different from hereditary uh, transthyroid and amyloidosis. It's a, it's a autoimmune disease, but that, um, that Epstein-Barr has, has been identified causally uh, as, uh, as causing... Uh, multiple sclerosis in a subset of those patients, which, you know, there, that's been a, a, a postulate in Parkinson's disease, of course, as well, that virus can turn on something that's sort of hidden in your genome and, mm. uh, and make it active. Um, you know, in that case, I, you know, I haven't done much reading on Parkinson's disease or where we're at with that, that hypothesis, but I certainly uh, know people with Parkinson's disease who, can tell me stories about having uh, had a viral infection very soon before their um, very recently in the past before they their onset of symptoms. So it's uh, it's a compelling idea, and understanding the mechanism of that would be incredibly important. Now, Epstein Barr virus isn't this one of those viruses that's endemic in the population? Meaning yeah. it's very, very common. Like 90% or something. Let's look that up. <laughs> okay. And, <laughs> and if you have Epstein-Barr virus, it might present itself as a mild cold or something, right? You wouldn't know that you had Epstein-Barr virus. But what you're saying is people that get, or maybe I'll put it this way, there are a subset of, of multiple sclerosis patients who are triggered by getting affected with EBV. Is that correct? That's right. Yep, where they could find the link to EBV infection. Wow. So the um, the numbers I'm seeing from Cleveland Clinic are an estimated 50% of all children that are uh, up to five years in age have wow. been exposed to EBV, and 95% of adults experience an EBV infection in their lifetime. Okay, and they, they experience an infection, they recover like from any other virus, right? And yeah. they go on with their life, but then there's that subset of, so they don't kind know of what like the long mechanism is. Right? They, like, they don't know what the mechanism yeah. is, right? Because we're talking yeah. about a complex autoimmune disorder, and we're, now we're getting into the nuances of autoimmunity, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think, you know, I've heard it linked, although I don't know the scientific case for it, but I've heard people claim that it's linked to fibromyalgia. Or um, hmm. uh, what's the other disease that's um, 
that's been compared to long COVID. Uh, Mike Snyder is doing a, a study, I think, looking, or, or he proposed a study looking at the difference between chronic fatigue, uh, CFS, wow. and uh, long COVID, just to understand what what are the differences. And uh, yeah, it might be interesting to to see what the link. Well, getting is back to the those. EBV and multiple sclerosis story. Is there any, um, I don't know, development, preventative that could be prevent MS for these subset of people? Yeah, I'm not. An, I have, like not, I said, I haven't. I haven't read that paper uh, like, directly. I just know it's quite the buzz from people that I trust. Yeah, interesting, yeah. man. And then you mentioned that EBV may be implicated in some of these other neurological disorders, but if people. 95% of them get, of adults being exposed. What can you do, right? Yeah. <laughs> do we go exactly. back to wearing masks all the time? No, I'm not suggesting that. I, yeah. I'm just thinking about the sort of practical implications. So. Well, Epstein Barr, remember, is a, is a herpes virus, right? So those are very uh, hard to avoid. Um, yeah. This battle, right, between infectious organisms and humans. That's right. It's been going on for a while. That's right. Well, Sarantis, you want to close with any thoughts? No, I think the, the thoughts and the, the nice take-home heads, what take-home message for this type of papers is like, we hope we're going to see double-stranded RNA therapies coming. RNA, we are in the RNA era and therapies from vaccines to double-stranded RNA, and the proteomics can really be a nice tool to assess uh, biomarkers, right? Like uh, endpoint uh, end effects. So that's, that's pretty much what I say and what excited me this paper. That's great. Well, thank you for the time today, friends thank and co-hosts. Thank you very much. Okay. Yeah. Thank Thanks you very much. Thank you for listening to the Proteomics in Proximity podcast, brought to you by Olink Proteomics. To contact the hosts or for further information, simply email info at olink.com. <laughs> <laughs>